welcome to another episode of Locked in Science. At least for the time being, we are still locked in, we are still social distancing, and boy, are we having a great time in this, what is our now our, I guess our distributed studio, you could think of it like that. Uh, Claire, Stu, how are you coping? Oh, you know, um, uh, the, the weeks just seem to be flying by, don't they, Chris? They certainly are weeks, that is true. Uh, If not flying by, then generally blurring into one another, I think Yeah, I think that might be the better way to look at it Yeah, it could be a speed blur, (laughs) like a motion blur Or it could just be uh, everything kind of oozing out A a miasma of weeks Yeah, (laughs) a sourdough starter of weeks Throwback to my last show A scoby of weeks A scoby of weeks, yeah so we have an excellent show, though, lined up for you uh, this week. Claire, what have you got to surprise us with? Well, this week is a special week because we have a special guest with us, Professor Marie Gertz, or Marie Gertz, who is a professor and head of nursing um, at the University of Melbourne. And she is with us because she, because we are celebrating... International Nurses Day. Uh, it is on Tuesday, May 12th, every single year. But this year it's special because not only is it International Nurses Day, but I don't know if you knew this, 2020 is International Year of Nurses and Midwives. So that's even more special. I knew it was the International Year of Plant Health. Could this be a combined thing? Plant nurses? <laughs> Nurseries. No, no, no. The nurses and the midwives need their own need their own uh, need their own celebration, Chris. I'm afraid. Separate the nurses from the nurseries. Yes, there there's definitely needs to be some separation going on there. Um, and the reason it's um, a whole year is being dedicated is that it is 200 years um, since Florence Nightingale was born. Uh, the and Florence Nightingale pretty much the um, um, she professionalised nursing. So um, Marie's going to talk us through a little bit about um, how she did that and also, you know, what nursing is like in 2020, especially um, with the backdrop of COVID-19. Great. Uh, and Stu, what have you got? Uh, well, look, there's there's a backlog of news from outer space uh, this week. So you're saying that you're saying that space hasn't stopped working even though there's a global pandemic does it not stretch that far No absolutely you you know full well that space goes on and on and on for a really long way possibly infinitely we don't really know but uh there is a lot of space news and I'm going to jam it all into the show this week um all sorts of stuff's been happening from from you know actual Regular old scientific research to all sorts of weirdness from the Pentagon and, oh, look, just just hold on to your hats because this one's going to blow you away. Hold on to those tinfoil hats. <laughs> <laughs> all right, then. Well, on with the show. This week marked International Nurses Day on Tuesday, May 12th, 
Of course, this is a special event in any year, but this year it's even more important with 2020 being the International Year of Nurses and Midwives, all happening during a global pandemic, which has brought into sharp focus the vital role of nurses at the front line of healthcare around the world. To talk to us about why the world needs nurses now more than ever, I have with me Marie Gertz, Professor and Head of Nursing at the Department of Nursing, the Melbourne School of Health Sciences at the University of Melbourne. Marie, welcome to Lost in Science. Thank you. So Marie, it is International Nurses Day this week. What does this day symbolise? So International Nurses Day is obviously celebrated every year, but um, this year, as you mentioned already, it is particularly important because what we're doing this year is commemorating 200 years since the birth of Florence Nightingale, who's widely considered to be the founder of the modern nursing profession. And so each year we do talk about the importance of nursing, but this year we particularly want to highlight the value that nurses play in terms of public health and the delivery of healthcare to populations. And the important role that they play in the pandemic um, is a coincidence, but actually an important coincidence because uh, they are the people who provide healthcare to populations over 24 hours a day, you know, so they're the people providing the surveillance of patients' health status. So they're frontline workers. They work as part of an interdisciplinary team. But importantly, they're there to provide comfort and care to people and to use the science that they have. They, they study at a high level now in universities um, and they understand applied science and humanities and they, they use that in their work with people to ensure that they get the best possible care. And so in, in Australia, we're very fortunate that we have a, a highly skilled nursing workforce and relative to other parts of the world, it is true that the nurses in Australia are able to provide the levels of care that they need to. That is not the case in all parts of the world. So in many parts of the world, there are shortages. There's a global shortage of nurses at the moment. And right. so we wanted to highlight um, that particular issue. Why? Because of the expansive work that they do, the increasing growth of the population generally, and the, the ageing nature of the workforce, the nursing workforce. Um, and it, it, they are the largest profession that um, provides health care. So um, technology is evolving all the times and treatments, medical treatments are developing. But we really need nurses to be delivering that frontline care and making sure that people are safe. Now, Marie, you mentioned it's been 200 years since Florence Nightingale was born. I'm curious, in your opinion, um, looking back historically, what would you say has changed since then and what has stayed the same for nurses? Well, let's start with what has stayed the same and perhaps some of the legacy of Florence Nightingale. I think that's a really important thing to remember about her. She was a young woman when she went to the Crimea and she, she really contributed in three very, very important ways which remain very pertinent to us today. And the first one is really in infection control in hospitals. So she was a, an early subscriber of 
what we call sanitary science, which is a broad science. Of course, back in those days, little was understood about viruses in particular or bacteria. Um, but what she did understand and what people at the time understood or enlightened people of the time understood was that there was a link between disease and uncleanly conditions, un unsanitary conditions. And so she was a great proponent of basic hygiene, hand hygiene, keeping people clean and keeping environments free of uh, filth, which was obviously a big issue in the Crimean War when she uh, visited there when she was a young woman and she systematically adopted systems. So she used her influence to adopt systems of to provide a clean environment for people to ensure that nurses washed their hands and um, physicians and surgeons washed their hands and kept uh, minimised the spread of infection. Now, she didn't really understand how infections were spread in the ways that we do, but nonetheless, these principles were absolutely fundamental to turning around the mortality and, and morbidity of people on the front line. In fact, it was thought that people died more from the battles, the injuries sustained in battles, but actually many more died from infection. So she had an important role there and she developed systems for infection control. So the other thing, another thing that she did that was important was that she was a highly educated woman, as a matter of fact. She studied statistics and mathematics and she used her um, abilities as a communicator and her understanding of mathematics and the observations that she made in these hospitals to affect change, to influence change and make hospitals safer places for people to be cared for. So that was the second thing that she did. And finally, the other thing that was important about Florence Nightingale, she was a great humanitarian. So she really cared for the people that she looked after and she was hands-on, as, as all nurses are. She appreciated the importance of providing psychological care for people who, who didn't survive. And she played an important part because she, she did encourage patients to send messages that people that wouldn't survive to send messages to the families to provide comfort to the families. So those are all things that are obviously very important to... Yeah, sounds very yeah. fundamental to um, nursing today. Yeah, so those, so those are the pillars of, of nursing practice today. And she wrote a lot of books and she, the, when she came back to, the, uh, to Britain at the time, she was seen as a hero, but she encouraged the donors of a fund that was set up to set up a, an educational school um, for nurses because back in those days, nurses weren't regarded highly by the community. They weren't trusted. They weren't a trusted profession as they are today. So today nurses are very well trusted and thought of very highly by the community. Back in those days, they, they hadn't enjoyed a good reputation because they weren't a regulated profession. And so what she did, she insisted that the money that was raised be used to set up a school of nursing, and that was the School of Nursing at St Thomas's, which is still um, going today, and that is indeed St Thomas's Hospital is where Boris Johnson was treated for his COVID-19. Oh, really? Yes, that's right. And he was so struck by the 
by the quality of the care that was provided to him by the nurses, that he named the nurses that provided him with that care. And what he noticed about them was their ability to observe and respond to changes in his condition, to just be present with him. So he commented on that. And he talked about the way they initiated interventions to make him safe. And he, he credited them actually with his survival, which is a testament to those nurses, but also to the professional way in which nurses work today. So the second part of your question, you were asking about what's different. And of course, technology and our understanding of disease has evolved remarkably since those times back in the 1850s, of course. We understand much, much more about viruses and bacteria and um, disease and we have much more sophisticated ways of protecting people from infection and safeguarding the community but still those fundamental pillars remain and the nurses today are still predominantly women but we do have an increasing number of men which is good for having diversity for populations but we also we have the technology to monitor physiological parameters very very closely so People like Florence Nightingale would have been looking intuitively at patterns and observing patterns in people, changes in respiratory rate, work of breathing and those kinds of things. We still depend on those, but we have many, many more monitoring tools in our armoury. And you mentioned Boris Johnson, you know, called out the two incredible nurses who were responsible for saving his life. I mean, nurses around the world are on the front line of this global pandemic. Uh, many of them are risking their lives to provide care for patients. Um, is this the most dangerous time to be a nurse? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, nursing is a risky profession. There's no doubt about that. Even before the pandemic, you know, nurses do face various challenges to their safety, but um, they do have skills also and they have techniques and they work together to manage those risks. They are highly educated professionals. Yes, it is risky, but there are many safeguards within the system to support nurses and ensure that they are cared for in an appropriate way in terms of their occupational health and safety. Now, that's the case in Australia. Again, I, I mention um, the Australian context because it isn't the case in all parts of the world. We are very lucky to be in this country in regards to the, the health response that we've had to be able to flatten the curve and um, manage the the pandemic in the way that we have but we're also very fortunate with because we have a very robust health system and even though there have been shortages in personal protective equipment and things like that the governments have worked together to make sure that those safeguards are in place for health workers including nurses. In your role as um, Professor and Head of Nursing, can you tell me a little bit about the role that universities are playing right now in providing training, whether there's an opportunity to upskill nurses from different, I guess, specialist areas to give them the essential skills to work through this pandemic? Yes, definitely. So universities play a critical role in um, working in partnership with health services. So at the University of Melbourne, we see ourselves as working as partners with the hospitals and we, we identify where the 
learning needs are for the nursing workforce and mostly that's in the area of specialist nursing practice although we also provide basic entry to practice education as well so for us um, we responded to the COVID-19 pandemic working in partnership with Safer Care Victoria and we used our educational materials to develop a wrap it up skills program was particularly looking at the knowledge nurses needed around the evidence to manage COVID-19 because as you can imagine with a new disease such as this that we hadn't seen before we needed um, a mass of evidence and get that in place so that we could actually provide evidence-based education and so we did that um, in a two-week period we developed a, a wrap it up skills short course with Safer Care Victoria as particularly looking at the management of acute respiratory failure and the sequelae of COVID-19 in terms of multi-organ dysfunction. So um, these patients are critically ill and there are certain interventions that need to be put in place for them that we wouldn't normally see. There are also significant safety considerations and so that the nurses need to, to have the basic information there around that. So we're using clinical practice guidelines to form the education and those guidelines are coming from places like the World Health Organisation. So for example when we're putting a tube into somebody's airway in order to be able to put them on a ventilator there is a high level of risk to the anaesthetist or the doctor who's putting that tube down and also to the nurses who are connecting the patient to the ventilator. So we had to put special training in place for that. Now, the hospitals themselves, they, they once their nurses have undertaken that basic um, course, they then go on and give them the technical skills, so working mm. in them the hands-on skills to practice in simulation mm-hmm. to learn that, and they need to learn that as part of a multidisciplinary team. Um, so, Marie, 2020, as I mentioned, it's also the International Year of the Nurse and Midwife. What community understanding and appreciation would you like to see come from this year? So we, we know that nurses are appreciated by the community and this year is really about highlighting the value of nursing work not just for the sake of it but because we need more nurses we need more people to and we need diverse people from the population to aspire to become nurses and to undergo nursing education because nursing is critically important to the attainment of good health and good population-based health for the entire world. So our interest is partly to recognise, obviously, and pay tribute to an amazing workforce who who are well-deserving of the accolades, but more importantly, to attract good people into nursing to make it a career and enjoy the rewards of the profession in terms of the scope of what you might undertake in terms of research in terms of clinical practice and in terms of education. Marie Gertz, thank you so much for joining us today. And of course, a big shout out to all the nurses out there um, working very hard. And Marie, I hope you can come back on Lost in Science and we can talk a little bit more, hopefully after the pandemic. Uh, Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure. Science, the final frontier.
These are the voyages of Lost in Science, our ongoing mission to explain strange new words, to seek out new science and new explanations, to boldly go where no radio has gone before. A lot of us have had not a great deal to do lately, uh, for obvious reasons, and Staying at home, trying to entertain ourselves when we've watched everything remotely interesting on every streaming service can be a little bit tricky, but at times like this, we look to one of the oldest watching experiences. We watch the skies. Um, Now, obviously, astronomy is interesting enough at any time, figuring out what constellations you can see from where you are or looking at the rise and the set of closer planets uh, is a fascinating pastime. And, you know, um, I've got an app that tells me where planets are and I always find that amazing. It is. I mean, even um, even tracking the moon or being a bit more in touch with where the moon is in its cycle um, during isolation has been um, a nice upshot. The moon is one that you can actually track from home quite easily. Uh, you don't have to go out into a remote field, which could be... I don't know if that's one of the excuses allowed for leaving your house. Um Officer, honestly, I was just going to look at some stars. I don't know where that will, that will work. <laughs> if you're an astronomer, it counts as work. If you're not, it might be a harder sell to the to the nice police who come to come to arrest you. Um, but you know, there's also things like satellites. Like the ISS flew quite close to Melbourne the other day, and a lot of people went out and saw that. That'd be the International Space Station, wouldn't it? The ISS. Yes. Yeah. Yes, and uh, and you know, there's apps and things that can tell you where that is, and and other satellites as well. You can look up and see all sorts of things. Um, and uh, there's also objects that we can't identify that sometimes appear. And some people have been very excited that the Pentagon has released footage of some unidentified objects from their archives. Are they just unidentified, Stu, or is there another? adjective you would um you would put in there no i would i'll stick with unidentified because they sure don't know what they are um but they're flying they are right flying. they're unidentified flying objects which which all right. is that's all that's yeah, all that's what ufo means and the pentagon have said yes yeah. there here's some footage of ufos that we have have a look check it out see what you reckon because they don't know what it is i believe um I believe the the modern term is unidentified aerial phenomena. Yes, that is which kind of gets away from the flying object thing. There could be anything. Well, that's that's the other thing about about UFOs and unidentified flying phenomena is there is all sorts of reasons that things can look like they're moving fast and objects that appear to be actually there are not really objects. They may be tricks of the camera or tricks of other things and various other phenomena, as you say that could explain what these things are. But look, go and have a look. You're not going to have any trouble finding the footage. It's all over all the news services right now. But some people are going crazy that the Pentagon's admitted there are UFOs. They've always admitted there are UFOs. There are UFOs. That just means they're unidentified flying objects. They haven't been identified. So go identify them. Knock yourself out. It's <laughs> it's a great way to spend your time if you've got a lot of time on your hands. Um, now, obviously... There are unidentified objects that turn out to be things that we can explain. Now, a man in regional Victoria who's a pathologist 
some reason has lots of time off, which didn't really make sense to me. I would have thought pathology was in demand right now, but no, he had a lot of time off. And he's up in uh, Swan Hill, up in the uh, northwest of Victoria, and he identified something in the sky, which he reported, and it turned out to be a new comet. Hey. So it's it's called a, it's, it's a Swan Comet. There's been a few comets identified which have this designation of swan um, but the naming conventions mean uh, Michael Matiazzo who actually identified it doesn't have the honour of naming it for himself as he discovered it using one of NASA's satellites called Swan so basically he just poured over the satellite data and identified this comet and said hey I think this is a comet and then NASA went yeah it is we'll call it after our satellite that you found it with we'll Thanks, take that Matt. thank you very much Thanks, Michael. Um, Now, it's not visible to the naked eye, but you can see it with uh, a decent telescope. Um, There's another comet at the moment called Atlas, which was, uh, according to the rules, named after the Atlas telescope, which discovered it. Um, Astronomers were watching that one, and they thought it was going to give a really good show. You know how they have the big, long tail coming out as they get closer to Uh the sun? Except as it got closer to the sun the solar wind broke it up into lots of tiny little pieces and there was nothing to look at. So they were a bit disappointed by that, uh, by the Atlas comet. Um, but, you know, they're watching the Swan Comet now and, and you know, getting a bit of joy from that observation. Um, now, other uh, astronomical events lately, um, the Eta Aquarid meteor showers, which are pretty much a seasonal thing, um, they can be seen from late April through to May, but visibility has to be pretty good in Victoria. Not so good. Uh, it was the other day when it was supposed to be the best time to see them. Um, apparently wasn't such a good day for watching meteorite showers because it was cloudy. But in other places, you may have had a better view. And they do, uh, there are sort of waves of them that come um, pretty much... Uh, periodically throughout the the season that they arrive. If any of our listeners saw them, uh, took some photos, uh, it would be wonderful to see um, and send them to lostinsightgmail.com, please, because... And we'll show them on the radio. Yeah, we will will show them on the radio. Well, at the very least, we can tweet them and and post them on our Facebook page. But, yeah, if you see anything, even if you don't know what it is... (laughs) Aerial phenomena unidentified aerial phenomena. That would be amazing. Um, Now, on a larger scale, um, the Eta Aquarid meteors are quite small. Obviously, they fizzle up in the atmosphere and they're gone. Uh, On a larger scale, a two-kilometre asteroid came very close to the Earth at the end of April. It was only 6.3 million kilometres away. That's pretty close. That's quite close. Yeah. Um, the same asteroid will be back in 2079. It's going to be even closer. It's going to be 1.8 million kilometres away. So, nail-biter when that comes back. <laughs> it's like the Terminator of asteroids. I love it. Yeah. It. Yeah, we should get up there and spray paint. I'll be back on the... <laughs> On the side of the asteroid. I'm, I'm sure they've got plans for that. Yeah, it's, it's on NASA's uh, to-do list. Um, the object is classed as a potentially hazardous object, 
But all that means is it's within 5 million miles, according to the people who give them these classifications, uh, or about 8 million kilometres of Earth's orbit. It doesn't even have to be near Earth. It just has to be within the realm of Earth's orbit. Um, and is the, the size limit for these potentially hazardous objects is 140 metres. So this is much bigger than some of these potentially hazardous objects. Uh, but it's unlikely to hit the Earth even you know, at any point in the future. These objects have very predictable orbits, and this one called uh, creatively Asteroid 52768-1998-OR2. Sounds like what um, Elon Musk and Grimes named their child. Yeah, which is pronounced Sasha, apparently. Oh, really? Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, no, great. Side, side note. Um, wouldn't be allowed to call their child that in Australia. We have uh, strict rules about what you can put on a birth certificate. Um, but uh, so this this giant asteroid has been tracked by a Puerto Rican observatory since 1998. So we've got a pretty good idea of how it moves and where it's going to be at any given time. There's no real threat from that. Um, even bigger than a two-kilometer asteroid... Uh, the closest black hole to Earth has been observed by astronomers at the European Southern Observatory in Germany. Um, but it's only it's only a baby as black holes go. It's only 40 kilometres across. Tiny, weeny little black hole. Mm. Um, How much does it weigh? Um, as much as it weighed when it was a star, so... Yeah, I think it's about four times the sun or something like that. But yeah, condensed down, so it's now a black hole. Now... Uh, some researchers think there might be even closer black holes than this one, um, but unless they're near other objects, you can't really see black holes. They're you know notoriously black because they <laughs> suck in all the light that happens to be nearby them. So um, this one is in orbit with two other stars, which are probably about the same age as the one that's uh, turned into a black hole. Um, and the other stars are in the same orbit because, like I said, it's got the same mass as it did as a star. It's just a different sort of arrangement of that mass. Um, and these are very young stars, according to the reports uh, from the astronomers. Um, our sun is for about 4.6 billion years old. That's 32 times older than these stars. So they're only 140 million years old. So they're just little baby stars, really. Um, and 15 million years ago, one of them went uh, supernova and turned into a black hole hasn't actually affected the other stars much. They're still in this three-way dance orbit around each other, um, and they're not close enough to be really affected. They just get a bit of a wobble caused by that star, um, but they're affecting... Uh, sorry, caused by the black hole. They're affecting the black hole as much as the black hole's affecting them, if that makes sense. So they're all sort of interacting with each other, but they're not going to get sucked in by it or anything like that. Um now, even though it's the closest black hole anyone has detected to Earth, it is over 9,500 trillion kilometres away from Earth. So it's not really going to cause us any issues uh, at any time. And even though that we know it's there, it's not like we can you know, send out a space probe to investigate or anything like that. Um, although Chris did send me an interesting article, there may be one, uh, you know, there's a, there's a theory that there's one very close to Earth, uh, which is actually 
that some people have a theory that the uh, the missing ninth planet in our solar system is actually a very tiny black hole, but it, it's pretty pretty slim on evidence, that theory, I think, Chris. But like you said, um, the fact that they're black and you can't see them, and this, this like, like, latest discovery indicates that they are out there um, and there could be closer ones, but we just can't see them, which is that's something to think about at night. Well, I guess, you know, the, th- the thing is that we, y- you can detect them by the movement of other things around them. And our solar system, relative to the rest of space, is actually quite full of stuff. So if there is something like that in our solar system... Yeah, there's unlikely to be a stellar-sized um, black yeah. hole, but yeah. A planet-sized. Yeah, but this one is, I believe, these stars are visible from the Southern Hemisphere without a telescope. So it's, that, it's close enough that you could, could see it if it was visible. Um, but yeah, still lots of stuff going on in space and, um, you know, just so many things that have been um, off the radar lately because of uh, other obvious reasons. I just thought I'd catch us up on some of the big space news and some of the small space news. Um, but, you know, um, yeah, stay tuned for more space news on other episodes of Lost in Science. That is it for another episode of Locked in Science. Thank you to Professor Marie Gertz for telling us all about nursing over the last 200 years, but particularly in this time of global pandemic. And thanks, Stu, for telling us all about what is coming to us from above, be it unidentified phenomena, meteorites, or black holes. I'm sure there's nothing to worry about. Uh, Lost in Science is, of course, recorded in Melbourne at the homes of Claire, Stu and Chris, normally at the studios of 3CR. Uh, it airs across Australia with the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. I should say that we are recording on the lands of the Kulin Nation uh, in Melbourne. Um, we'd love you to get in touch with us. Send us your pictures, your astronomical and otherwise. Actually, just the astronomical ones mostly. Um, but if there's anything else that you want to say to us, you can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com or you can find us on Twitter. We are at Lost in Science 1. We're also on Facebook. We are Lost in Science on 3CR. We are on your podcast apps. If you're on an app where you can rate us and review us, that'd be great because that helps other people to find us. Or you can just listen to us on the various radio stations where at the same time every week, Claire, Stu and Chris get Locked in Science! Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.